0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. You all ready for this? On WCPT 820.
1: Hello, thank you for joining me this Thursday, January 25th. It is my birthday, and I am very happy to share it with you today. Ray's taking me out for a big fancy dinner. I met some friends for brunch, and... I have so many flowers at home. uh, (laughs) It's kind of starting to look like a funeral home, but that's an issue for another day. Again, uh, thank you for all the birthday wishes. Uh, Tomorrow I am going to be taking off because nothing says birthday like medical tests. Yeah. Um, But I'm not worried about them. Um, you know what, there's no point in worrying about them anyway. So I, uh, I'm i going to be here today and uh, Jennifer Weigel is going to be in here tomorrow and then I will return to you on Monday, January 29th. But we've got uh, a lot of guests books, uh, booked for today's show and I think we're going to have some really interesting conversations. I want to start off with uh, the fact that Donald Trump is uh, testifying in the renewed Eugene Carroll case. Remember, it was put on hold for a few days uh, because one juror thought they had COVID, and um, a couple of the lawyers thought that maybe they were sick too. Uh, but it's back. Um, Alina Haba asked Donald Trump if he um, stood by his deposition. You know, uh, the deposition where he said, oh, it doesn't know what E. Jean Carroll's talking about. Never happened. Bl-. You know, the same, the, you know. The judge, uh, in the, it's already been found. Slow down, Joan. It's already been found that he sexually assaulted E. Jean Carroll. It has already been found that he defamed E. Jean Carroll when he said that she lied about everything she said about him. We're not debating those questions. We're not deciding those questions today. All that we are doing today in court is deciding if the original amount of money that Eugene Carroll was awarded should be increased. Why? Because after he was found guilty and liable in the first civil trial, he went outside and spoke to reporters. And he repeated the statements that brought about the defamation case in the first place. And so she and her lawyer said that uh, they were going to go back to court and they were going to ask for more in the way of damages, since clearly whatever had been assigned, the 10 million that had been assigned, was not enough to restrain him. So this time... They are asking for punitive damages, and that is what a jury is deciding. And today, Donald Trump took the stand and basically repeated his story. Um, it varies at times. Sometimes he doesn't know E. Jean Carroll. Sometimes uh, he just said he could never have sexually assaulted her because, quote, she's not his type. <sighs> the jury has gone home for the day. God love him. And and on it goes. But um, this was after he um, won the Republican primary, presidential primary in New Hampshire um, and made, you know, what is typical for Donald Trump, made one of the most ungracious acceptance speeches Again, this man is all about grievance. He's all about being the victim. And to some degree, you know, that's his appeal to people. Because they feel like their lives didn't turn out the way they should have or the way they wanted them to. And it's got to be somebody else's fault, right? especially those black and brown people, if they weren't, if there wasn't, you know, affirmative action, um, things would have gone a lot better for those white people who feel like their lives didn't go the way they wanted to. There's got to be somebody to blame. And by God, Donald Trump feels that same grievance, that same level of grievance. So he made a particularly ungracious acceptance speech in New Hampshire where he basically trashed Nikki Haley. And, uh, then he flew to New York so he could trash Eugene Carroll. Do we sense a theme here? I think there's a theme here. George Conway, who, um, I don't know if their divorce ever got finalized. Used to be married to Kellyanne Conway, who still to this day goes on Fox cable, uh, Remember, she in, she invented or at least she popularized the alternative facts. Well, that's not a lie. That's an alternative fact. And uh, her husband is now one of the like probably um, second only to Chris Christie in the bluntness with which he derides Donald Trump. George Conway was on uh, Morning Joe this morning and was interviewed by Willie Geist. They talked about New Hampshire and they talked about Nikki Haley. Listen to this.
0: So, uh, George Conway, you do see uh, fear in the eyes of Donald Trump in that speech, the most ungracious political speech we've ever seen. Victory speech anyway. After winning New Hampshire, just grievance ridden and going after Nikki Haley again and again. Maybe he shouldn't be, but he appears afraid of her.
2: Oh, he absolutely is. And, and this is part and parcel of what I'd like to talk about, his, his pathological narcissism and his sociopathy. People like Donald Trump know know that they are not what they pretend to be he talks about being a stable genius because he knows he is neither stable or a genius and he's been doing that for years and he knows deep down that he's deteriorating under the pressure of the, the legal cases and and as a result of his advanced age and Kudos to uh, to Nikki Haley for finally going after him in the way that he needs to go after him, in the way that people need to go after him, including the Biden campaign in the fall. You need to needle him. It's not the, the campaign has to be much as much a sci- psychological operation against Donald Trump's empty brain as it must be um, attempt an attempt to persuade voters, because the two go hand in hand. You you, you poke Trump and you make him behave crazily, crazily. Crazily, and then you point out the crazy and then you point that out to the voters and it's a cycle. And it's it's really important that she she keep doing this. I don't think it's going to end. I think she's done it a little bit too late, uh, but I think it's important that she do it.
1: I think it's important that she do it, too. She seems to really get under uh, Donald Trump's skin. She really does. And like I say, you know, I think that's um, she has no shot at resting The nomination from his tiny little orange hands, she has no shot unless, like I said, unless there's a major medical event that really physically takes him out of the race because there is no indictment and there is no conviction that is going to cause him to quit this race. It just isn't going to happen. It is not going to happen. And um, I like... I like the fact that she gets under his skin. And, you know, she has, uh, like I said, the Koch family pack where they get all these really, really, really rich, really, really conservative Republicans to donate a lot of uh, money. Uh, And they came out a while ago that they announced they were going to be supporting Nikki Haley. So she has some really deep pockets behind her. And if all she does is harass Donald Trump, that's good enough for me. That is absolutely good enough for me. God love her. Uh, Interestingly, um, on uh, Lawrence O'Donnell last night on MSNBC, there was a Democratic strategist by the name of Simon Rosenberg, And we got to have a real good feeling about this election because, again, we say this all the time. There are more of us than there are of them. And the Republican Party, the MAGAs, have been doing things that have been driving more and more people into our camp Overturning the Dobbs decision, taking away a woman's right to bodily autonomy, going after LGBTQ people, banning books, going after transgender kids. There is a lot of things that the far right, far right candidates can't get away from. If they want to get nominated. But. They are too far right to win elections in many places. And that is going to be a very important factor in the 2024 election. MAGA is crazier than ever. It is coming after personal rights, it's coming after women, it's going after our democracy. And that those may be necessary opinions if you're going to be a MAGA candidate, but that is driving more and more and more people over to our side. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. That's important. Simon Rosenberg, as I said, Democratic strategist, was um, on MSNBC last night with Lawrence O'Donnell, and he talked About the big picture, we can't get so wrapped up in an individual race here or there. That we lose sight of the big picture, and I still think regardless of what's going on with MAGA, we still have to worry about what's going on with third party candidates, which we're going to talk a little bit more about in the weeks to come. Because we've we've seen how those can screw up an election. But right now, if you're looking at the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, the playing field looks pretty darn good for us. Listen to what Simon Rosenberg said to Lawrence O'Donnell last night.
3: Since Dobbs happened, and I really do, I begin to think that Dobbs may have broken the Republican Party in some ways. That the, the, Even for the 20, 30 percent of Republicans who are not MAGA, it was just a bridge too far. It was too much. They couldn't handle it. And that the Republican Party now has even become deeply unattractive and ugly to Republican voters. And so since Dobbs in 2022, they've continued to struggle. They just aren't winning elections. They're not getting their voters to turn out. They're struggling in these early states. MAGA is a failed politics, as Nikki Haley, by the way, said MAGA lost in 2018, 2020. And in the last two years, last we've done an extraordinary thing. The party in power always loses seats in modern American history. We gain ground in 2022. We gain ground in 2023. And that's because the most powerful force in our politics today is fear and opposition to MAGA. It's far more powerful than disappointment in Joe Biden and the Democrats. And the Republicans, you know, instead of running away from this politics, they're doubling down on what has been an absolutely failed politics in recent years. And I think Democrats should be optimistic about what we what we can do in 2024.
1: Amen to that. And um, I'm going to try to uh, reach out to this guy. There was one of the guys who was one of the founders uh, a while back of the whole No Labels effort has repudiated it. He has said, well, you know, he was one of the people who got it off the ground. I'm going to try to see if I can uh, get him uh, to come talk to us in the weeks ahead But he has said he has studied the data and he sees that there's no way that a third party candidate is going to win an election. All they can do is be a spoiler. And he doesn't want to be a part of that. He does not want a group that he helped found to be the reason why Donald Trump gets four more years in the White House. And then, of course, we have the candidacy of uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who I think for the most part is supported by people who just see the Kennedy name and they think that, that they're looking at a candidate who espouses the same values that we've seen from RFK Sr. that we saw from his brother JFK without really um, looking into what the man stands for and what he believes. You know, he he's trying to, just like Donald Trump, he's trying to pretend that who he was before isn't who he is now, because he's a very famous anti-vaxxer. And he did an interview recently um, with on, with CNN, and he said, oh, no, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. And she was like, okay, well... Tell me what vaccines you think are safe. He goes, well, I don't think vaccines are safe, and I don't think anybody should be required to have them. But I'm not an anti-vaxer. Well, what would an anti-vaxer look like then, RFK Jr.? Uh, they're not safe, and nobody should. Uh, kids shouldn't be required to get them. But I'm not an anti-vaxer. There's some political speak. And then, of course, there was the social media post by Rory Kennedy, Carrie Kennedy, Joe Kennedy II, and Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Saying that the decision of our brother Bobby to run as a third party candidate against Joe Biden is dangerous to our country. Bobby might share the same name as our father, but he does not share the same values, vision or judgment. Today's announcement is deeply saddening for us. We denounce his candidacy and believe it to be perilous for our country. And how did um, RFK Jr. respond to that? Oh, you know, some of them, some of them work in the Biden administration. So they're just, you know, that's why they're all for Biden, because they work in the Biden administration. And, you know, I have a really he, he said, I have a really, really, really big family and not everybody feels that way. That was his response. His brothers and sisters saying this guy. You shouldn't be voting for this guy. I don't know. I I would have an influence on it would have an impact on me if I was thinking of supporting him. But what do I know? What do I know? Joe Biden this week. Got a big endorsement from the United Auto Workers. The UAW president, Sean Fain, Declaring in no uncertain terms their support for Joe Biden. This is a pretty early endorsement. Lots of times um, major endorsements don't come till later. But, you know, Joe Biden was the only president in modern history to walk a picket line. When the UAW was on strike, he went to the picket line. Uh, something that hopefully made a huge impression on union members, it certainly made a huge impression on um, the union leader Sean Fain, and um, <laughs> he um, was pretty blunt in his um, his words, um, both in favor of Joe Biden and his opinion. About um, Donald Trump, you know I'm, I'm not even going to just let's just listen to it. Listen to this.
3: It's not about who you like. It's not about your party. It's not this bullshit about age. It's not about anything but our best shot at taking back power for the working class. <laughs> Donald Trump is a scab.
1: And if you are a union member, as I am, that is just about the worst thing you can say about anybody. Uh, UAW coming out big, coming out early for Joe Biden. Uh, there is other news, and it's... um politics at its worst, you know, on Capitol Hill, they were trying to work out a deal that, you know, put together Indo-Pacific, namely Taiwan, Israeli, Ukrainian aid, in with um, some reforms for border policy. Um, But apparently Donald Trump, because he now sees himself sailing to the nomination, Donald Trump has been calling Republican senators and telling them he does not want any deal on immigration. He doesn't want any deal on immigration because he thinks that is the issue that Joe Biden can best be attacked on. So Republican senators have been calling Mitch McConnell and basically saying, you know, what what are we going to do here? What are we going to do here? The guy who is the likely Republican presidential nominee is telling us not to vote for anything that includes um, border reform, migrant process reform, money for the border, because and we've said this before, but it's still galling. Because Donald Trump doesn't want it to look like Joe Biden has had any success on this issue, because this is the issue he wants to use to attack Joe Biden. I wonder, you know, people tend to not follow politics with as much attention to detail as I think. The listeners of this radio show do, the hosts of this radio station certainly do, and people who report on politics. So is Donald Trump going to be able to sell that lie? Is Donald Trump going to be able to convince people that Joe Biden has been ineffective in reforming um, the situation at the border when Donald Trump is calling? There's a deal that was so close They were negotiating. They were really close. And it is now dead, according to Mitch McConnell. And he is saying that the reason that a border deal is dead is because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump doesn't want a border deal because he wants to be able to attack Joe Biden over what's going on at the border. We know that Donald Trump's hardcore followers don't really care. He could say, do a border deal, don't do a border deal, doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter to them. They are gonna, they're gonna follow him no matter what. But we need to make sure that other voters understand that there's no reform at the border, there's no border deal. Not because Joe Biden can't get it done, but because the Republicans won't get it done, because it takes away what they think is their best attack issue for 2024. Hopefully, this won't tank aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel and aid to Taiwan. You know, they are talking now. Mitch McConnell said that, you know, if they were going to get anything passed, They were going to have to split those off and do those separately. It's not gonna, it's not all gonna happen together. Let's just remember that the Republicans are the reason there's no reform on this issue. And let's put a lot of pressure. If you have relatives that live in other states, Whether or not the Republicans are willing to go against Donald Trump on this issue, and they're apparently not, at least we need to pass an aid package for some of our allies. If Ukraine goes down, that is going to be such bad news for the rest of the world. We can't let that happen. We can't let that happen. Um, we're going to take a break. We're going to take a look at things in Florida right after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive WCPT eight twenty.
1: I'm happy to welcome back Giselle Belido, who's the political editor at Floriqua, which is the Courier Newsroom publication in Florida. Giselle, how are you? How are you, Joan? Great to be back. Wonderful to have you. I Thank was you. so pleased to see your article today uh, about book banning in Florida. Finally, at least a glimmer of good news. Tell us what's happening.
4: Well, as as you read in the article, um There is a bipartisan push to um, limit the number of um, actual uh, books that can be uh, retired from Florida school, you know, school rooms. So that's uh, that's a good thing that's happening right now. But, uh, you know, we're keeping our fingers crossed because it still has to, you know, to pass. So it passed the House, but there is no counterpart right in the Senate. So we're we're waiting to see.
1: But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but did I hear the word bipartisan, Giselle? Yes, uh, it it was initially proposed by some
4: Republicans in the House and uh, supported, um, you know, by by some Democrats. Uh, So so that's that's the good news that some people are, you know, actually uh, looking at how this is damaging Florida, not only students, but but Florida in general and, and, you know, the, the state's the
1: state's reputation even do you think that republicans which has been a party that has supported a lot of these real conservative moves but if republicans are now trying to limit book banning do you does that say to you that they think this went too far or that that it could hurt them in 2024
4: I actually believe, as you know, you know, the big news here in Florida is is that DeSantis dropped out of the presidential race. And, uh, you know, many of us believe that uh, it's not only because he struggled to connect with voters, but it appears, you know, that his culture wars, you know, the book ban, the attacks on the LGBTQ community uh, didn't resonate with voters. So I think that could be a big part of it, that they're thinking this is coming back to haunt them, you know. Uh, so that's one thing we're looking at. And after he dropped out of the race, we are concerned about what this will mean for Florida. And um, I can ex- explain why we're looking into that right now, you know, because after ending his campaign, he shared, uh, you know, a four and a half minute video an X, ex- you know, where he ended by promising that uh, in Florida, we will continue to show the country how to lead. So, we're wondering what that means.
1: What does? Yeah, that's kind of weird. I mean, he's term <laughs> limited out of governor. He didn't make it in this presidential cycle. Um, does the the fact I'm trying to take a big step back and OK, maybe this is wishful thinking, Giselle. But the fact that he withdrew after a um, wildly unsuccessful presidential campaign the fact that he's term limited as governor and hasn't yet announced any particular direction that he's going to be going. Do you think that his influence is waning? Was he more far right than a lot of Republicans? Are they going to try to move toward the middle now that they don't really have to worry about him anymore?
4: Well, there are several things that we're looking at right now. I mean, what does he mean when he says, here in Florida, we will continue to show the country how to lead? You know, as you say, DeSantis still has almost three full years left as governor, right? The question is, will he double down on his ultra-right stance? And, you know, there is a reason that he might. His advisors are already, uh, you know, talking another White House run four years from now. So DeSantis could be looking to revive himself politically by doubling down on his hard right position, or maybe, as you say, he will he will move more to the center. We still don't know. However, there's also talk that his wife, Casey, might run for governor. And uh, in recent surveys, uh, she leads by a wide margin, 22%, you know, followed by Matt Gates with 9%. So that, you know... Wow. That is another
1: concern that you have. Yes. Wow. And mm-hmm. that's yes. gonna, That's going to uh, be interesting. I had heard, I had heard some uh, rumors that um, people were thinking of moving her more into the spotlight. Supposedly, the feeling was during his presidential campaign, she was a much better campaigner than he ever was. Um, but um, do you think, you know, I, could, I live in Illinois. Chances are that unless some we're in really bad shape or somebody is very charismatic, we are we're going to stick with a, a Democratic governor for the time being. We're right now a pretty Democratic state. Do you think Florida is going to stay a Republican state? Do you see any Democrat who could emerge to challenge Casey or Matt Gates?
4: Well, uh,
1: there's some good
4: news in that end. You know, uh, there appears to be a, a blue trickle, <laughs> if not yet a wave, coming in with, you know, Donna Deegan, a Democrat who won for mayor of Jacksonville. And now in a, in a special race uh, that was actually seen as a bellwether for Democratic chances in November, uh, there were two candidates, Tom Keene and Erica Booth, both won Senate seats in Orlando. You know, and, and in 2022, those seats went to Republicans by more than 11 percent. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be, you know, a small seat change, apparently, you know, happening. And uh, to your question about potential candidates, uh, you know, for go- Democratic governor, there's Nikki Freed, the chair of the Florida Democratic Party. Uh, there's also Senate Minority Leader Lauren Book. A very strong, very vocal opponent of the you know, and a champion for reproductive rights. So, you know, the question is, could we see a Democrat in the governor's mansion? That remains to be seen.
1: Hmm. Um, Giselle, there was some controversy about how to say uh, Ron and Casey's last name. Um, I don't know why it um, I guess he corrected somebody uh we've all been saying desantis but he wants us to say desantis is uh, is that right well we we say disaster to be honest
4: with you but <laughs> well,
3: I, I guess I we like can call it even better <laughs>
4: uh we can call him desantis if he likes um i um, i don't know what the reason behind that is to be completely frank with you i have no idea why he's Correcting people on the, on that pronunciation, so you know. I guess uh, I, I have no idea, to be honest.
1: <laughs> um, it uh, it seemed it seemed like an odd thing. I mean, you know, I remember when Demi Moore became Demi Moore, but you know, most people just kind of go with uh, go with the flow. Um, talking about about his wife Casey, you say he has three more years in the governor's office. Do you think he supports? this idea of his wife and if so is he going to use the next 3 years to try to increase her profile can he use his position as governor like say you know to, you know do a statewide tour and she happens to be there and by his side and she happens to be making speeches do you do you think there's going to be that kind of a push or is this just going to be the kind of thing that pundits wonder about i I believe that there
4: could probably be that kind of a push. You know, she has been called her husband's humanizer in chief. Right. Mm -hmm. She's a she's a former TV host, so she knows how to project an image. I mean, let's be honest. He struggled to connect with voters. Right. He has very little charisma, if any. And she was his humanizer in chief. And uh, she is, uh, even though some people think uh, that she gives off that impression, she's no step the wife. Those close to DeSantis have said that she is instrumental in shaping him and driving him. So that is going to be interesting for the next three years to see what path they take.
1: You've been reporting in Florida for quite a while. I remember when DeSantis was first making noises about running for president, some of uh, the local Florida media said, you know, wait till, wait till this guy hits prime time. He's never, he doesn't have the skills. He isn't going to make it. Did you did you feel that same way? I mean, what the DeSantis that you knew when you covered him before he became a household name? Did you see those flaws in what he was doing in Florida and the speeches he was making, et cetera, and so forth?
4: I think I think you could tell how completely out of touch he was with. Certain issues and how heavy-handed he was with he was with other issues. Um, you know, some video, videos he made, you know, attacking the LGBTQ community, backfired tremendously. So I think he I think he was deluded into thinking that everybody was as extreme as he is. But I think the abortion issue has proved, I mean, even Republicans are against, you know, the 15, six-week ban that he signed into law. So I think he was, he didn't have his finger in the pulse of, you know, Floridians. I think he really, really was uh, deluded into thinking that we were as, Floridians are as extreme as he are, as he is.
1: How could that be? I mean, I would assume that you know in uh, in running for governor, he traveled all around the state and talked to people. Was it just that he surrounded himself with advisors? I know sometimes politicians just want to surround themselves with advisors that tell them they 're great they 're wonderful they 're brilliant i mean why did he misread the situation, not only in Florida, but you know, he kind of brought that same misreading like, you know, I'm gonna be Trump only more so, and so they're gonna they're gonna like me better. And they didn't like they left Trump because he's Trump and DeSantis was never gonna be Trump. How did he go so awry, do you think, Giselle? I think that number one number one
4: is that he is so completely extreme, but also, the, let's be honest, the lack of charisma. I mean, Trump sprouts only gibberish. I mean, Trump says, you know, the you know what they say? He reads the, the fine print out loud. He tells us exactly what he's going to do. He is telling us he's going to be a dictator. But he has a way about him that I guess people like, you know, as opposed to De, DeSantis, who is so... Um, he has no human uh, charisma. He he doesn't portray warmth, right? Mm. He's been called robotic, robotic. He can't even uh, smile on camera. <laughs> so, so I think that I mean his his smile has been analyzed left and right. You know, um, for being uh, they call it AI smile, an AI smile, artificial <laughs> right, intelligence. Yeah.
1: Actually, I think if it had been created by AI it would be more human than the smile he generally gives giselle i agree, I agree a hundred
4: percent so so this is what we 're dealing with right now we 're wondering i mean w- which path will he be taking now? Will he you know listen to what to what people are saying and sort of move more to the center or will he double down and continue to make Florida um, as he believes an example for the rest of the country, even though he knows now that the rest of the country does not want him, hmm. right? Yeah. So it's it's a tough call right now. We he's probably regrouping and thinking about his new strategy. Jeez.
1: Um, I'm talking to Giselle Balido, who is political editor at Floriqua, the Courier Newsroom publication in the state of Florida. We are going to continue our discussion right after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side,
5: you will call a spade a spade. And if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what?
1: I
0: can respect that. I'm WCPT 820.
1: I am very pleased to be joined by Giselle Valido, who's the political editor at Floricoa, which is the Courier Newsroom publication in Florida. Giselle, I want to go back uh, to you mentioned that uh, Florida has gained a couple of Democratic seats in the state Senate. Um, tell me about the candidates who won those seats and why you think they were able to do that.
4: I honestly think they were able to do that because there's a general fatigue here in Florida Um, and many Republicans, I think, um, are are taking in consideration how a lot of these Republican bills are affecting them in real life. I think Democrats are beginning to do a good job in explaining to people the, the, you know, the relationship between the people in office and what is happening in your life right now. And the fact is that right now in Florida, people are having to move out of their homes because they can't afford the property insurance. In some cases, it has doubled and tripled, right? Uh, People can't afford rent in Florida. Okay. So, so people I think are beginning to, Democrats are letting people know they're not talking in, in abstraction so much as in getting down to the nitty gritty and letting people know, you know what, The way you vote really does affect the way you live. And I think, you know, both those candidates did a good job, did a good job in doing that. And they're all, of course, uh, they're both uh, progressive and, and, you know, uh, pro-reproductive choice and against book bans and uh, against, you know, all the LGBTQ bans that DeSantis signed into law. So I think that that's what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. I and I've spoken with some uh, Democrats who are saying that this is exactly what needs to be done. And they're going out and talking to young people, you know, uh, going across campuses and and talking to to young people and talking to them about the importance, uh, you know, of going out to vote to not be disillusioned by what's happening.
1: You said something that kind of surprised me, and I know the Floriqua has written about this. You know, I think of, I hear all the time in Chicago about a lack of affordable housing. We know that rents are through the roof in New York and that it's the cost of housing in Los Angeles is really high. But I didn't realize that was a problem in Florida as well. Could you talk about that a little bit?
4: Well, in Florida, we have a particular problem. A lot of people are, are moving into Florida because, you know, since people can now, you know, work remotely, they want a better climate and, uh, you know, Florida, let's say it has terrible politics, but, you know, good weather. So people are moving here and um, DeSantis has refused to use a fund, the Sadowski fund, to create affordable housing. He's refused to use it, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't have affordable housing and rents are through the roof. You know, I, I, I personally have a friend whose rent went up $700 on top of what she was already paying. Oh, my. Right. And I have a friend whose, um, you know, homeowners association is $1,500. The
1: homeowners association? Good grief. So the homeowners Right. So, and personally, my um,
4: property insurance doubled this year. Wow. You know, across the nation, it's like $1,700. Here in Florida, on average, it's $4,000. And this is, you know, because of the, I had um, a senator, Victor Torres, a Democratic senator, who told me, all this is the result of Republicans being in power for 20 years in Florida. That's it. They don't want to give Democrats any wins, so they will not use federal funds. You know, we are one of the few states that has not expanded Medicaid. There's no reason why we shouldn't, but we don't.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I have read about states that uh, that won't do that. And I... I think I think that's very short sighted. You won't take federal money, federal money that would help the people of your state because you don't want to do anything that makes Joe Biden or the Democrats look like they are succeeding. Won't the people of Florida figure that out? Well, I think Democrats are beginning to point that out
4: here in Florida. I guess You know, around the country, Uh, do you know, that news right now is very biased and some people only listen to one kind of one type of news. And here in Florida, we have all these conservative radio stations and they spew the same messages and how bad the economy is under Biden. And, you know, if you don't listen to the other side, that it's not Biden, Mm -hmm. that these people are not using federal funds and they're making deals with, you know, uh, insurers. And you ignore that, then you keep believing that it's, you know, the Democrats' fault. But, again, I believe that, uh, you know, under Ricky Freed and a lot of, you know, um, Democratic senators are, for example, there's a a Jason Pizzo I recently interviewed, uh, one of our representatives. He goes around the universities talking to students and, and, you know, informing them about what is really going on, you know, and, you know, trying to get them to, to register to vote. So I think Democrats are beginning to do a better job here down here in Florida.
1: Well, that's certainly good to hear. One of um, my listeners texted in while you and I were talking. Um, It said they said, do the majority of Florida voters like the way the state looks to the rest of the country? What do you think about that, Giselle? How do we answer that caller?
4: I will answer that caller by by saying that the Democrats, you know, we certainly feel as if, you know, my gosh, you know, our state looks so bad in in, in education and, you know, in LGBTQ rights and race relations and immigration. You know, our state is not looking good to the rest of the country. But, however, a lot of people in the Republican Party think it's perfectly fine. I think some of them think we should go they should go you know, further in, 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 the book bands and, and, you know, the LGBTQ, um, I mean, there's even now a, a bill that was passed where if you're a transgender individual here in Florida, you will have to put on your license, you know, your birth gender, you know, they don't accept, uh. right. So, so th- some of them think, you know, they should go further than that. It's, it's very hard to take the pulse here in Florida, to be honest with you.
1: Wow. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any sense, you said that, you know, there are still some people who are really um, want to clamp down on LGBTQ rights and, and that sort of thing. Do you get any sense of what demographic that is? Is it a certain age? Is it a certain part of Florida? Is it a certain race?
4: I cannot honestly... Um you know, guess as to what demographic it is. I I can can only say that, you know, it's people who obviously are ignorant on a lot of subjects and I think they need to be better educated. I mean, you know, I encounter a lot of people and I'll be very honest with you, even liberal people who have a very hard time understanding the transgender issue. They think that some people just wake up one morning and decide they're going to change their gender. And yeah. I've encountered this. You, you know I mean I think people people need to be educated uh, you know on these issues.
1: It, that, it, that just I under I, I know and and there are, and there are certainly people who still feel that being gay is a choice. You know, like, um, you know, you choose to be gay and why anybody would choose. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be part of a minority that doesn't really have the same rights as other people. And some people just revile. But, you know, that looks good to me. I'm going to join that club. How does that make sense, Giselle? It doesn't make any sense.
4: I I usually ask them, did you choose to be heterosexual? Yes. And. You know, exactly. And they also think that, you know, you can be a kid 10 years old and decide you're going to have sex reassignment surgery. I mean, that's not a kid can go up to to a doctor's office and say, I want to change my my sex. So there's a lot of ignorance and ignorance fosters fear and fear makes people react in these ways. And, you know, a lot of politicians here have been using that fear.
1: Yeah.
4: against you know, the LGBTQ community.
1: And that's. That fear is, I think, also promulgated by conservative radio and Fox Cable. You know, they live off of that kind of um, off of that kind of, oh, you better be careful. You know, the world is changing and all these horrible things are happening because that kind of fear. <clears throat> I think they think that the fear is addictive and that's how to keep their listeners and how to keep their viewers.
4: Well, then they've managed to do a pretty good job of that. I I mean, a lot of people are voting just running on fear, especially here in Florida, you know, with the LGBTQ issues, with the race issue. You know, we we, I mean, we had a book here for children it's for kids about Rosa Parks and the race was taken out of the book.
1: (laughs) So now it would make no sense. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it would make no sense whatsoever. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what that whole story hinges on. <clears throat> right. So, um, so that's what we're dealing with here. <laughs> well, Giselle, I'm so glad you're there fighting the good fight, and the people of Florida are so lucky to have the Floriqua, and I hope you can make some inroads into all of that misinformation and disinformation and fear-mongering that you and I both know comes from conservative media and... um Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. You too. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Take it away, Ian. Yeah, it away, It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Joan Esposito. Whoa,
1: that's an explosive sentence.
0: On WCPT 820.
1: January 27th, this coming Saturday, it will be Holocaust Remembrance Day, which makes me think, what exactly should we remember? How should the Holocaust be taught? And it's an important lesson to learn, how did ordinary citizens get caught up in the madness uh, Dr. Dan Mcmillan has written a book called "How Could This Happen?" and joins us now to talk about Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for being here.
6: Thank you for having me, John.
1: Uh, let's start with some of my most basic questions what What is it that we should be doing and thinking about and remembering about this? Terrible time.
6: I think that I think there are two things that that are one that you you alluded to on, in the lead in, you know, is to is to is to understand that you know, if you teach people the wrong ideas and put them under the wrong government and place them in the wrong circumstances that any of us is capable of, of doing the most horrible things, because ultimately um, and for the longest time historians tried to see the Holocaust as the product of a uniquely German pathology but the thing is, there's no such thing as a German brain or an American brain or a Chinese brain, there's a human brain, we all have it, and so the way that human, human behavior can be so radically different depending on circumstances and ideas, is a general important lesson to know. I think the most important thing I, like, I want people to understand about the Holocaust is that is, is why it is really the only historical event that truly frightens us. Other terrible crimes we deplore, we find sad or disturbing, the Holocaust scares us. And it's the only event that people, so many people, millions around the world, try to deny happened. And I think the essence of its horror is that it is the one moment in history where the ruling class of our most advanced society affirmed that an individual life, human life, has no value whatsoever. The most, if you want to know the shortest answer to why it happened, is that the people who did this saw no reason whatsoever not to do it. And if we could go back in time and and get 10 or 15 or 20 of these these killers around the table and ask them, why in heaven's name are you doing something so ghastly, so cruel, I think the answer we'd get would be a shrug of the shoulders, and they would ask us, why not? They're just people. And so that's, that's really what makes the Holocaust unique, in my view, among all mass. All events in history. And then, of course, we have to understand what factors came together in time to rock human life of all value among so many highly educated people uh, in such an advanced society.
1: I think you've hit the nub of it. It's terrifying because it speaks to our inner weakness and capacity for evil. Because there were, aside from the leaders, I mean, you know, we used hear about atrocities committed by military and leaders who make bad decisions and people end up dying. But the the Holocaust wasn't just the leadership. There were ordinary Germans, ordinary Europeans. And, you know, there were um, even Americans who supported, you know, what was going on in Germany. And I think that's what's terrifying. It speaks to perhaps something within us that either isn't as strong as we think it is, or maybe is something that's lacking altogether. What do you think about that?
6: Well, you know, actually, Joan, I think it's important to remember that the Holocaust is not Typical human behavior. It's something of which we are capable, but I, I, you know, and this is not, I think, from my long study of history and also just my lengthy experience of life with so many different kinds of people, I think, on balance, the default setting of human beings is kindness. I think human beings want to do what's morally right. Um, I don't think our civilization would have made the progress that it had or have the achievements that it had if, it, if that were not the case. I think it's better, rather than sort of talking about sort of evil that's within us that gets let out, I think it's better to just say that, our, that we are infinitely malleable. And I think that's maybe because we, you know, we became the dominant species because we are infinitely adaptable to circumstances. Unfortunately, it means that If you put, as as I say, you teach people the wrong ideas and you put them in the wrong circumstances, most of us don't have a firm moral compass. You know, we want to do the right thing morally, but if the people around us adopt a definition of what is morally right, um then we're going, to go, we're going to go along to get along, and we'll do that. And things that we that even a year earlier or even a week earlier that we thought were immoral, like murder, we can adopt as morally right. And it's, a, it's, it's alarming how quickly this can happen. But again, um, you know, my view of human nature and the human future is really very optimistic based on my study of history. So I don't want to be giving a feel-good interview about the Holocaust, <laughs> but at the same time, it, it's just really – it's so essential to understand why this happened. And at the same time, I think it's a real mistake to take it as pessimism about human nature and the human future, because if we're going to make a better world where everyone belongs, if we're going to make an America where everyone belongs, we've got to have some faith in ourselves and in our ability to want to make moral progress. And I think if you look at, at human history, I think one thing that's just undeniable is that human beings, I think as part of our nature, we want make progress, we want to morally become better. And I mean the the belief in moral perfectibility is the is at the core of all the world's great religious traditions. And I think you look at human civilization especially in the last three centuries, I see tremendous moral progress, but as with so much progress, it's sometimes one step forward or two steps forward and one step back. In the case of the Holocaust, it was about 2,000 steps back um, in one country in one decade. And I don't mean to minimize it. Again, its uh, I mean, I've devoted my life to understanding it. I think it's very important and, and quite horrifying, uniquely horrifying. But um, anyway... Um,
1: Well, you know, I've got to say, um, I am so glad to to hear you being so uh, positive about humanity. I I would think that anybody who really had written about and studied the Holocaust, would be a little less um, upbeat about our chances as a species. Well, you know what it is,
6: you know what it is, Joan? I think that it's interesting because my book, you know, was the first... And to date really remains the only comprehensive essay on the causes of the Holocaust. I mean, there are libraries full of great scholarship on all the, the separate causes you know on Hitler and racism and World War One and World War II and so on my book 's the only one that really put the pieces of the puzzle together for the general public. And it's strange that it took 70 years after the Second World War for that to happen. And I think one of the reasons why no one else undertook it is people, people are afraid, if we really understand why it happened, we're afraid of what we're going to learn about ourselves. And I guess I didn't have that fear because for some reason, I got this from my parents from early childhood, I always had just a, a faith in human goodness, And so I wasn't afraid to look at this question, and I also needed to resolve the question for myself. And then once I did, I guess the most important general conclusion of my book is that, yes, this is, I think, the most depraved thing we've ever done, and it is part of our human potential, and it's a warning Um, that we must never take the value we place upon human life for granted because it is fragile but on the other hand uh, it took really a perfect storm of about a dozen factors that had to come together in one time and in one place to make this possible I mean it, it for this to happen in such an advanced and cultured and many ways decent society it wasn't enough for one thing to go wrong or two or three you needed a dozen things to go wrong and and thus in and that way, once I completed this study and came to fully feel that I understood this event, it really kind of, then my faith in human goodness was is kind of unshakable because I was able to reconcile that faith with really, I think, the worst thing we've ever done. And that's kind of what I'm kind of hoping other people, one of the things that people will benefit by reading my book.
1: Well, uh, I know that well, we all should sit down and read your book. But you talk about there were many things, there were many um, factors that led us up to the Holocaust. Talk about a few of them, if you would.
6: The the rejection of the value of human life. One of those was the slaughter of 10 million young men in the First World War, including 2 million Germans. And if you, out of only a total population of 66 million, it would be as if we today fought a war and lost 10 million dead on the battlefield. That dramatically cheapened human life, lowered the the bar for violence. A second factor is that we thought about race, racial difference, ethnic difference in ways that were radically different in that time uh, the way people thought about race was was characterized as social Darwinist racism. it was a, a misapplication of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection to human society and it was this idea that every different ethnic group or nationality, is a race of its own with a distinctive genetic signature, and each group had evolved further from the apes than others, and in and in different ways, and that there was a hierarchy of value among these different, these different races with... You know, only white northern Western Europeans at the top, um, at least in in the eyes of most of the people who are creating this, which opens the door to the notion that some branches of humanity have little value or no value, or in the case of how the Germans viewed the Jewish people, as effectively vermin in human form as having uh, genetic genetically determined behaviors that were destructive and parasitic so that, that you really had to destroy them. Uh, and the other thing that comes from, from social Darwinist racism is the way it's thinking of international politics is our Darwinian struggle for survival among the races of the world. And this is not just in Germany. This is how the powers of Europe and, and we also justified our, our colonial empires, Um and, and, and it led during that time to a, to a glorification of war, which was thought to advance the perfection of humanity by allowing uh, inferior races to die out. And, and the last factor, I think, that just destroyed all, all constraints, all moral constraints on behavior... Uh, very hard to get our minds around is the deification of Adolf Hitler by the German people and especially by sort of the ideologically committed members of the SS, which is the the paramilitary Nazi organization that organized and carried out most of the killings. Hitler came to be seen as someone who stood above and outside history, who was shaping the course of history, who was the source ultimately of all law in Germany, who was not subject to any kind of moral constraints, and therefore, it was sort of Hitler operated in a norm-free space, and if you were carrying out his orders, then you also uh, were operating in a norm-free space, and so this—you have a, what is really a, a perfect storm of these three factors: the World War One, social Darwinist racism, and this unique position of Adolf Hitler. Um, a kind of cult of personality that is more extreme than seen in any other political system, including Stalin's Russia or Mao's China. These things come together. And in that way, that made it possible for hundreds of thousands of educated Germans and German and Austrian men uh, to adopt this radical moral nihilism um, And that's also part of my optimism for the human future because it just, this was so unlikely, almost impossible, that these factors and many others came together in this one place in time to enable this.
1: I'm talking to Dr. Dan McMillan. He wrote a book called How Could This Happen? It is Holocaust Remembrance Day this coming Saturday, January 27th. We are going to continue our discussion after a quick break.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I'm talking with Dr. Dan McMillan, who uh, wrote a book about the Holocaust called How Could This Happen? This Saturday, January 27th, is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Dan, you said something about one of the critical uh, things that happened that allowed the Holocaust to happen was this deification of Hitler. Mm-hmm. How does a political leader get
6: thought of as God or God-like? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for zeroing in on that, that, because I really would like to dig a little deeper into that. This is something that's characteristic of political systems in profound crisis. When people feel that the system is broken down, then the only place they have to go for hope is belief in the superhuman qualities uh, of a leader. And... um, germany in in January of thousand nine hundred and thirty three when Hitler came to power was in the most profound crisis of all the The Great Depression hit Germany i think the hardest of the major industrial economies when he came to power, unemployment stood at thirty uh, percent the worst was twenty five percent in our country at the same time, and on top of that. There was a sense that the Germans at that point had no idea whether there was any political system that would allow them to govern themselves. The the empire with the, the Kaiser had collapsed in the closing days of World War One. The Weimar Republic had turned out to be uh, very unstable uh, through little fault of the Germans and the Republic's leaders, but just a series of crises. Uh, the Republic was effectively destroyed by President Hindenburg uh, after September. 1930, and then Hindenburg and the cabinets he appointed, the the, the prime ministers he appointed also failed to deal with the Depression, and then Hitler gets uh, chosen, and then as it happens, really just through dumb luck, through no skill of his own, but he has a string of spectacular successes that would have led Really any people to regard their leader as superhuman. I'll just name the two most important. One is that when he, he comes into power, that you know, again, unemployment's at 30%. By 1937, they've got to full employment, indeed at some places a labor shortage. And the reason they did is that Hitler, unbeknownst to the German people, was decided, he wanted to lead the country into a, another general war as soon as he could make the country ready. And he engaged in deficit spending at, against the advice of his his economic advisors, and pumped tons of money into rearmament. And that, uh, he was basically a Keynesian economist without knowing it. And that, so this, unfortunately, this, you know, and the the average German, if they'd known that this was leading to another war, they would not have been happy at all, because that's the last thing they wanted. What they did know is they had their job back. But the French worker, Mm -hmm. the English worker, the American worker did not. And the second miracle for them was that in the spring of 1940, um, when, when Germany, Nazi Germany, invaded the West, um, they defeated the French and British forces in only six weeks, um, lost only 30,000 dead, and were masters of Western Europe. They'd fought the same enemies in the First World War. They'd lost 2 million instead of 30,000, and then they lost the war. Now, this was no genius in Hitler's part. He was, in fact, militarily, whenever he meddled in military matters, he usually Caused problems for his generals, but there was a uh, just a, uh, an innovate well not innovation but a very bold plan that was devised by one of his tank generals to send tanks through the Ardennes Forest, which everyone thought was impassable. And the tank columns just cut the, the French, and German, French and English forces in two, led to this stunning, this stunningly quick victory. And so after that, uh, and, and there were many other successes, you know, being able to annex Austria and the, uh, the Czech crisis, annexing the Sudetenland. So from the, the position of the ordinary German, Hitler has restored our country's greatness uh, until 1939 without firing a shot. Here in 1940, Oh, my gosh, we're looking for, at another World War I and losing another two million men, and suddenly it's over in six weeks, and we lose, we lose only 30,000. And so the Germans, from top to bottom of German society, thought he was a miracle worker. And that is, again, this wow. is sort of when I talk about a perfect storm of factors coming together. You know, you're talking about this just impossible string of successes that he has, that have nothing to do with talent on his part. But you, and then you also have on top of that uh, one of the you you have to say one of the fathers of modern public relations, Joseph Goebbels. Um, I mean, people at PR firms, I don't think have a, PR firms don't have a, a photo of Goebbels in the office, but he was a brilliant innovator in, in advertising and propaganda, and he had him to burnish Hitler's image, he had state-controlled media, and so this image of Hitler's infallibility and superhuman or even supernatural qualities became very widely shared, and that's kind of the third, that was the third component that that destroyed all inhibitions against killing and made it possible to just abandon all moral norms. In all sense, that human life had value. So,
1: a big part of the deification of Hitler was all of the trauma that went before, that sort of primed the pump uh, for people to be like open to this kind of thinking.
6: Absolutely, because you know, in other words, they were the Germans. I mean, we were look, we were very frightened and some degree desperate when Franklin Roosevelt took office, because our economy. I mean, we had twenty five percent unemployment, but. We knew at least what kind of government worked. Our democracy had not been under threat since the Civil War seven years earlier. But in Germany, not only did they have the economic crisis, but literally a series of failed political systems, not even knowing if any political system works for them because they were so divided against each other by class and religion and so on. And so they are are just desperate. Their last hope is that a leader is going to be just so brilliant that he can solve these problems. And just Hitler comes along and you've got this great propagandist to, to burnish his image and then this string of unearned victories on his part. And and so it goes, and that's that was sort of the the perfect part of the perfect storm of almost impo- impossible causes and flukes that that made this possible.
1: Uh, Dan, we have a caller who wants to join our conversation. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Jim, you're on with me and uh, Dr. Dan McMillan.
2: Hi, doctor. Hey, John. Does fascism have to have one later? Mussolini, isn't he the father of fascism in Italy? Wasn't that the first the political description of, besides communism
6: and democracy and monarch, he came up with fascism? You're right. The the, the first fascism took power in only two countries in Europe. The first was was Italy in 1922. Uh, The second was in Germany in 1933. And you mentioned communism. Uh, It's also true that in, in both part of the political strength of fascism was that. Only the only the fascists seem determined and violent enough to fend off the threat of communist revolution. And that is why both Mussolini and Hitler had so much middle-class support. Fascists hmm. a, in Spain.
2: It's a in Spain, too.
6: That's a good point. Yes, you, yeah, you, can, you can say that Franco's regime is to some degree fascist. Yeah, that's, it, it depends. It depends. You know, historians of fascism, they kind of go back and forth. Some say that it wasn't fully a fascist regime. It had very many sort of traditionalist conservative elements as well, um, particularly the alliance between the regime and the Catholic Church, which is very much not the case in Nazi Germany.
1: Thanks, Jim. Uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate the call. Um, Professor, we are we are out of time to the callers I didn't get to. I apologize. Um, remember this Saturday, Holocaust Remembrance Day. What is the best single thing that I can do to honor Holocaust Remembrance Day this Saturday? Um,
6: I think to just sort of remind people that the best defense against not only genocide, but I think of every kind of oppression, is government of, by, and for the people. And I think that, you know, we have so much anger in our society and in our politics, and I think that, not that I think that we're in all danger of of becoming, you know, a fascist dictatorship or committing genocide, but I think as I look at our country, I think that I would really like to see Americans come together in the recognition that for all our differences, we should be proud of the fact that this is the only country that stands for ideals, including government of, by, and for the people. And I think that's the common ground where we meet and remember that we're all in this together. And I guess that's that's the most important thing for me every day of the week. So yeah. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer, but that's what I think. <laughs> that's a good
1: answer, Dan, and I thank you for giving it. Dan McMillan's book is How Could This Happen? Uh, We are going to take a break and be back with more after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Joining me is uh, Ryan Tolley, who is the new executive director of Change Illinois and the Change Illinois Action Fund. Ryan, welcome to the program and congratulations on the new post.
5: Thank you so much. Glad to be here with you today.
1: Um, if you wouldn't mind explaining to my listeners what Change Illinois is all about.
5: Absolutely. Change Illinois um, is a nonprofit here based out of Illinois. Um, we've been working in the state for over a decade now and in large part focusing on ensuring that our democracy works for our communities across the state. We've long advocated for Bayer Maps, um, which is redistricting that is driven by community input instead of politicians. And we also work in the voting rights space, ensuring that uh, voters aren't facing barriers uh, to access elections and, and can make their voices heard. And we additionally work on ethics reforms, so holding elected leaders accountable through uh, ethics reforms and ensuring that they're there working on behalf of their constituents.
1: So, what would you say right now is your top priority?
5: Yep. The big priority for us is really getting out, educating folks on the importance of engaging with redistricting um, and being ready for the upcoming census and for the redistricting cycle that will be in 2030. It seems like a long way away, but we know, like, it will get here fast, and we need to have the structure, resources, education out there so folks can, can ensure that they're counted, getting resources for their communities, and ensure their representation. Um, is equal and fair. And state government and then local government, we have taken a local approach with this. We're working in townships across the state to, to raise awareness. And also in the city of Chicago, um, last year, or in 2021, we launched the first ever independent redistricting commission in the city of Chicago, which helped show how a people led process could work to put the power back in the hands of people. And we want to continue building on that to ensure that in the next redistricting cycle, voters and residents across the cities are the ones that are driving how their wards look and how they're represented in city government.
1: I have been talking this week with people about um, gerrymandering, uh, the opposite of what you're talking about. And, um, you know, it seems it seems to be something that human nature just can't simply resist i mean if you're a, <laughs> if you're an elected official why wouldn't you want your party to do everything in its power to make your next election just a little bit easier so what is it going to take to to get a, a fair map anywhere <laughs>
5: Yeah, I think it starts at the local level. Um, One of the things, too, not even on like party interest, but just individual's interest. Um, A lot of times, and this happens across the country, that when politicians draw districts, they draw districts to protect themselves and their Mm -hmm. own self interest and their own political viability. And so when We can get out and get education and meet with folks throughout communities in the state and and start at the local level with redistricting and cities and townships and, and counties across the state we're going to build that pressure up to move the needle. And, and we've seen great success with it in Chicago. And honestly, I think there's a lot of new elected officials coming in who have seen the the longstanding da- damages of gerrymandering. Um, and that includes partisan gerrymandering, racial gerrymandering that's used to dilute, to dilute votes. And, and they want to see a new process where the the people that are going to personally benefit from it are no longer holding the pen on drawing new maps.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Ryan, I realize that we've kind of gotten ahead our of ourselves, I, you know, jumping right into the meat of this issue. You're new to this job. Tell our listeners about yourself. What's your background? How yeah. do you come to love this kind of work?
5: Absolutely. So uh, I've been with Change for five years now. i served Previously as our policy director, so I'm very familiar with the work. I've been doing this for quite some time now. Even prior to that, I used to do advocacy for the small business community, and I got introduced to to the issues like gerrymandering because we had so many roadblocks ahead of us on trying to effectively be advocates for the small business community, and we couldn't get anything done because it was very challenging um, with the you know with the ethical issues that we're, our state deals with, and so I came to work for an organization work for change five years ago and um, kind of threw myself full force into this work to really make meaningful change uh, across the state and make sure that um, elected officials are held accountable
1: when you talk to the general public about. Some of your goals and the goals of this of your organization, what kind of a reaction do you get do people get it do they support it? is it important to them?
5: people get it absolutely they feel it in their daily lives um, when, especially as you get more local i mean gerrymandering and those kind of issues affect how people get city services, how responsive their government is. I think a lot of times in what you deal with is folks just feel like there's nothing them themselves as individuals can do. Or, you know, you're doing such a long game of trying to, to pass such monumental reform. It's hard for them to see the benefits of engaging now. And so that in part informs us to say, Why we're really focused on places like city of Chicago and in townships across the state, because that's where we can start moving the needle, implementing that change, getting um, real movement for folks to build a movement that can change the way that state redistricting is done, that congressional redistricting is done in the future.
1: I was reading one of your bios, and it said that you were instrumental in helping abolish the practice of prison gerrymandering in Illinois. I don't even know what that means, Ryan. Explain that to me.
5: I'm glad you brought it up. So prison gerrymandering is the practice of counting people who are incarcerated at the location of a prison at the time of the census. And in reality, that's really stealing representation to to downstate communities from places like the city of Chicago, because those folks, even though they may only spend a year or two incarcerated at those facilities for a whole decade, they're counted downstate and that affects representation, meaning less representation for the communities that they call home. It means less resources when the census does allocation. And so by abolishing the practice of prison gerrymandering, People who are incarcerated at the time of the census will be counted at their last known address. And that's gonna help restore representation for the communities that they're from. Unfortunately, this issue primarily affects a lot of black and brown communities in the city of Chicago And it leaves them at a disadvantage historically because they're they're not getting fully represented in state and local government from the way that they've historically been counted. So in 2021, we helped lead an effort to abolish that practice. And right now, we're working really hard to ensure that the state agencies overseeing this implement it correctly in time for 2030 and 2031 to restore that representation where it rightfully belongs.
1: So you're saying that if somebody is, a commits a crime in Chicago, but they serve their sentence downstate somewhere, that that they should be counted still as a Chicago resident because um, that's where they're going, that's where they're from, that's where they're going to return to, that is really where they reside.
5: Absolutely. And if you look at the data, most people who do... Are incarcerated only typically serve two to three years in prison, and this is counting their representation downstate for the entire decade. And so, it's really inequitable to to have the their representation be counted downstate rather than where they're living for the large vast of the. Of that decade. And so that's where the the real issue becomes is is how it's been done historically by counting them in places like Statesville and and other communities.
1: Uh, Ryan, we need to take a break. I'm uh, speaking with Ryan Tolley, who is the new executive director of Change Illinois and Change Illinois Action Fund. We are going to be right back with more after this.
0: Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT eight twenty.
1: And I'm joined by Ryan Tolly, who is the new uh, director of Change, executive director of Change Illinois and Change Illinois Action Fund. Ryan, one of the other things that I know that you were involved with was uh, ethics reform and lobbying reform down in Springfield. Talk about that.
5: Yeah, our organization has long been advocating for some much-needed ethics reforms in Springfield. Um, We, for instance, uh, there's a legislative watchdog that is supposed to help uh, keep lawmakers in check, make sure that there's no nefarious activities going on, and one of the primary issues with it is that in order for them to conduct an investigation, they have to go ask lawmakers for permission. So the very... Folks that they're supposed to oversee and be a watchdog for, they're beholden to them to even really get an investigation underway. They can start it, but they can't subpoena witnesses. They can't subpoena documents without asking for permission, which makes their job really challenging and difficult um, when the very people that they're, they're supposed to be have the authority to to investigate can shut their investigations down if they want.
1: That's um, how's how's you know if there's a state that could use ethics reform, it seems to be the state of Illinois. I mean, I don't know. I know other states from time to time have had their troubles, um, but uh, the state of Illinois seems to really need some kind of help in 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 this respect. Are you satisfied that enough has been done?
5: No, there, there's so many areas of improvement on ethics reform and including the issue I covered and, and some conflicts of interest, things that could be instituted to ensure that, that there's no additional benefits or outside benefits other than serving constituents. Um, there's campaign finance reforms that could be looked at. There's there's a lot of room and, and what I would say is opportunity for the state to put forth bold and Progressive ethics reforms that that cut out some of the the bad behavior that we we become all too well acquainted with in our state. It's um, and, and my hope is that in order to break from that past, we can really see some energy in Springfield around that and collaboration with elected officials who are there for the right reasons but don't want to be tarnished or stained with uh, the the past history of of. Um, what what has happened down there? I mean, currently we have our former Speaker of the House under indictment, and it wasn't that long ago that he was there. And there's plenty of other trials and and convictions that have happened recently, not only at the state level but locally here in the city of Chicago too. And so, uh, to me, th- there's an opportunity for elected officials to want to make sure that the those who came before them aren't aren't they aren't dealing with their perception can really push forward some bold new ethics reforms that that help restore trust in government because that, that's the biggest thing too is that when constituents when people don't trust in their elected officials to act mm-hmm. in their best interest it just creates a, a terrible environment where where folks. Lo- where folks just give up trying to engage and it creates more room for corruption and ethical lapses uh, when when people aren't engaged with their state and local government.
1: Are there any particular state senators or state representatives here in Illinois who who are working with you on these issues? Somebody you can give a shout out to as being um, in the vanguard of ethics reform?
5: There's a number of them. We're still, we're hoping that we can build out a large table of collaboration, but we've worked with a ton of great local officials on on some ethics bills. Um, For instance, we're currently working with Rep Rashid on a bill to tackle the legislative ethics legislative inspector general issue that i spoke with spoke about earlier um so so but we're hopeful that we can really build a coalition of lawmakers down there that that really want to see some some bold and substantive change but rep rashid has been amazing and, and understands these issues and has been a close collaborator on, on the that legislative inspector general issue
1: what if anything you know can my listeners do to help with it, either when it comes to the fair maps or when it comes to ethics reform. How can just regular folks get involved in this work, Ryan?
5: Yep. They can go to our website that's change il.org um, visit there we have volunteer opportunities um, we have community organizing opportunities that folks can find about on there they can subscribe to our newsletter list to stay informed and follow us on social media and then i would also say for listeners it's, it's an election year Um, and I would really encourage folks to get out, make sure they vote. Um, that includes in the March primary, not only the general, I know we like to, uh, kind of focus on the general election, but the March primary is super important too, as you're looking at these down the ballot races with your state officials. And then, you know, there's, there's, in Illinois we are fortunate there's tons of methods to vote. There's a newer law that allows you to get on a permanent list to get a vote by mail ballot um, so you can save yourself some trouble in the future. We also have a new law that allows for 16 and 17 year olds to pre-register to vote so if your listeners have any kids that are might be going in to get a state ID or a driver's license soon they can go ahead and pre-register it so at the time of they turn 18 they don't have to go through that registration process that they'll be eligible.
1: You know, um, Ryan, I signed up for that uh, permanent vote by mail, and I have to tell you, uh, every election I panic. And I think it's not coming. It's not coming. Why isn't it here yet? It hasn't. It isn't coming. Something went wrong. Maybe I should. Maybe I should uh, go and vote a different way. And then I don't know. After several days of panic, it shows up in the mail. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I just I don't know. I just (laughs) keep assuming that either I screwed up in how I registered or that there has been some bureaucratic problem. But I have to tell you, despite my recurring episodes of panic It really does work very well.
5: Yes, it does. And I would say if any folks run into issues with getting their vote by mail in the future, like, call your local election authority. Those folks are there to help you and ensure that you can vote. There's also um, voter protection hotlines um, that's 866 our vote where folks can call if they're experiencing any election issues. So there's there's so many resources out there to folks that they can take advantage of if they do run into issues and make sure that their vote can get cast and that their vote is counted on election day.
1: You said if somebody feels that they've got a problem, they should call their local election authority. Would that be looking up a number for the Board of Elections? Would that be a county number? Who would your local election authority be?
5: Yeah, it, it varies a little bit. So our our state has a decentralized uh, election authority where across the state there. Primarily based on county, but for instance, in the city of Chicago, the city has their own election authority where Cook County has a separate one that deals with voting outside the city limits. So um, you can always go to the State Board of Elections website and they can help point you to who is your local election authority uh, if you don't know it offhand and get their contact information from them. And um, yeah, and th- those are the folks that are there to administer elections and make sure they run smoothly.
1: If I could grant you the power to have any one wish about something that you would like to see accomplished or move forward in 2024, what would it be?
5: For me, of course, it would be truly independent redistricting reform um, that really puts power in the hands of communities. I think um, there's so, so, so many ways that government can and will improve if we can tackle this issue at the root cause and take the power of map drawing and allowing politicians to select their voters, take that out of their hand and place that power in the hands of community members. Um, I think we'll see more competitive elections. We'll see more options on our ballot. We'll see districts that are built around communities and don't, kind of loop around and pick certain areas um, because maybe there's voters that are more friendly to the incumbent or there's, you know, a, 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 you know, a certain, you know, parts of the state that they want to avoid because the voters aren't so friendly. Um, it, it it will truly make a difference in everyone's day to day lives.
1: And because um, noting our earlier discussion and my mention of human nature, for for any kind of fair and impartial redistricting to take place it really is going to have to come from voters and residents isn't it i mean I, I just think that's uh i think that's the only way it comes about that people have to be informed about what's at stake they have to buy into it and they have to you know pressure uh, their legislators who may have, have to go against their own self-interest to make this happen. So, is that going to be a big part of what you work on?
5: Absolutely, and and that's why for us, we're starting now with getting out across the state, educating folks. You know, I think it's one of the things we're redistricting is a very policy wonky topic to talk about. You know people uh-huh. only have to hear about it ten years, but it it makes. It's one of the things where we. that's why we have to get out right now, show people how this is going to affect their day-to-day lives, because I think a lot of times it it falls down. Even if folks say, hey, that would be a great idea, in their other list of five things that they want to talk to elected officials about, it might fall down on the priority. But if we all keep that issue as a priority, all the other things they care about will be much easier to get accomplished because they will have elected officials that – have to answer them, and if they don't, they're no longer in districts where, where they hand selected who votes for them anymore. And, and voters will be more empowered to select people that truly represent their interests.
1: And elections will be fairer. I mean, rather than relying okay. on the fact that you're gerrymandered, and so if you excuse me, get your political parties nod, you're as good as in office, you have to Mm -hmm. actually get out there, tell people what you believe and what you want to do, and see how they feel about it.
5: Yep. And we've seen this work in other states. Uh, California is a a great example where voters Uh, took to the ballot box and voted on an independent redistricting commission. And, And they went through two cycles of it. And what you see is a commission that is reflective of the state, but also by leaps and bounds when they're doing these hearings are engaging with communities. There's such a stark contrast when you watch their process versus what state lawmakers did here. And they have maps up and they're explaining to people how lines are moving or why they're making certain decisions. Rather than when elected officials hold that process, you go say your piece and they tell you things are coming. And and that's the last you hear. You don't know what happens with the input you gave. And um, so so that's something. And then also in other local jurisdictions, uh, Austin, Texas. Um, recently had success in moving to an independent redistricting process and, and the, the way that mapping works at the local there, level there is again stark contrast to what we saw in the city of Chicago where a lot of community members were boxed out or didn't have ability to participate in the redistricting process because hearings, they, they would publish a hearing two hours or maybe a day if you're lucky before it actually took place and and there's no way for people that have busy lives jobs to go to families to take care of to participate in a process that isn't transparent and doesn't want them to be there
1: yeah excellent well i think that change illinois and the change illinois action fund are in good hands ryan And I also think uh, you've got your work cut out for you here. (laughs) But I thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And I I thank you for joining us uh, to talk about this and uh, say hello to Madeline, Madeline Dubeck, who is uh, sort of, I guess, semi-retired now.
5: Yes, she's staying on as a strategic advisor through the transition period, making sure that I, I get my feet under me um, a, as we I move into this role. But I will make sure to say hi for you.
1: Thank you. Uh, Ryan Tolley, new executive director of Change Illinois. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Pizzito, on WCPT 820.
1: We are joined by Bobby Cogan, who is the senior director of field budget policy at the Center for American Progress. And a uh, budget is a word that we didn't used to say every day, Bobby, but those uh, those days have, are long in the past. How are you?
7: Hey, I'm great, Joan. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: So let's take a, a step back. And look at the big budget right now. Um, what happened? Why did we have to get another short-term funding bill?
7: <laughs> That's a great question. As you say, uh budget—the budget world is normally really boring. Only when things are going really wrong, once every ten, five, ten years or so, um, does it come up. The reason that we had to do another uh, continuing resolution or CR, or short-term funding bill, um, is that <laughs> this one is probably the last one. But basically, backing up, um, last June we. Got an agreement on top level, top line spending levels for this year and for next year. Um, but the issue was that literally within a week of that deal being made, um, House Republican leadership led by, at that point, Speaker McCarthy backed away from the deal. So they, they came up, they you know, President Biden signed into law an agreement that they agreed on, uh, that they'd come to. But then House Republicans backed away from it. And they so they spent lots of months trying to do other really extreme cuts that were kind of actually too extreme for their own party. They ended up pulling uh, five of their own 12 bills. And... <laughs> We did one CR and then another, and then we finally came back, and more or less, it's, it's slightly different, but we basically now have reiterated that deal with a few tweaks. And so this shortstop spending bill, this this CR, is to hopefully be the last one to kind of buy a little bit more time to now write funding bills that are um, in keeping with the agreement that we just re-agreed to.
1: Bobby, Sometimes I think this is going to be the new normal and that this is how we're going to fund things. It's going to be a month or two at a time. I mean, it seems to be the only way Mike Johnson can keep the government open and not alienate the really far right members of his party who don't want anything done in a bipartisan way and don't really um, like what they see in terms of a budget. So could this be Mike Johnson's solution every every couple of months? We vote for, oh, well, let's just extend the old budget another month or two.
7: Yeah, so you're totally right. The central conflict this entire time has been um, that there's been a portion of House Republicans uh, who want to do really extreme stuff. And when I say really extreme, um, I'm going to sound like a crazy person, but I can show you where um, in their proposed laws um, – this is right, so I, you know, I can anyone can go and look it up. They called for like an eighty percent cut to the major edu- uh, federal education benefits we do. It's this is K through twelve education, where we kind of help poor school districts um, hire teachers and, and keep their school like their school is literally um, intact. An eighty percent cut to that, a fifty nine percent cut to like the part of the budget that makes sure our drinking water is safe. Cuts to the agency that runs Social Security to make sure the checks go out on time and everything Um, cuts uh, like uh, biomedical research, cancer and stroke research, that sort of stuff. So uh, the issue, the fundamental, fundamental issue is that a portion of the House Republicans wanted that or else a shutdown. Um, And so and because the House Republican majority was so razor thin, that meant that you either needed bipartisan support for relatively normal bills or a shutdown. And that's been the central conflict. And as you say, um, you know, first it was Speaker McCarthy. Now it's Speaker Johnson. Uh, They they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to annoy that part of their that part of their caucus. And so uh, right now it's been it's been short term to short term to short term. I believe that we are going to see full year spending bills coming out of this. I believe that within the next month and a half, we'll have bills that kind of take us through to the end of the fiscal year, which is uh, September 30th. But it's possible that everything falls apart again because that same central conflict is still there. We still have an issue that there are there is not enough. Support to do it in a purely partisan basis. Uh, appropriations have always been bipartisan, and we haven't the issue is that there are some people who say, "Nope, no, you know, no deals, no anything." We'd rather have a shutdown.
1: Well, because we both know there are those people who say, "No, no, we'd rather have a shutdown than doing anything in a bipartisan basis." What gives you faith that this is, that there is going to be a bill passed that funds the government through the rest of the f- fiscal year? What are you basing that faith on?
7: Or maybe it's hope. Well, is it just hope, Bobby, or is it faith? Uh, I, so I, when, when push came to shove, um, that part of, you know, those folks— like, I was among the people who thought we'd see a shutdown on October 1st. Um, I I put it up there. I said I was more than 99% sure. Um, but when push came to shove, that, those folks blinked. They said, nope, never mind. We know that we'd get in trouble. You know, we know that we would take the heat for this. And the next time, uh, they blinked way earlier, right? And now, instead of threat, right, like, remember, Speaker McCarthy lost his job over all of this. But yeah. But Speaker Johnson has gone forward. He's reiterated the deal. They've begun working. And you haven't heard the people clamoring, like, the same way that they kicked Speaker McCarthy out, the same way where they could um, effect, effect, effectively force a vote of no confidence. Um, no one's been clamoring for that. And in, in the lead up to McCarthy being ousted, uh, people were talking more and more and more about kicking him out. And you are not hearing that for Johnson. So, yeah, they're unhappy, but they haven't been saying, oh, if you go forward with this, we're going to kick You out. They're just they're just I mean, one or two people have been saying that, but it's kind of different from before. And so I could be wrong. Yeah, I could be wrong. I'm I'm wrong all the time about political, uh, you know, about guessing how the politics of things are going to play out. But um, I believe I believe that we're going to see full year appropriations bills that are consistent with the deal that was just agreed to between um, uh, Senator Schumer and, and Speaker Johnson. Um, I believe that we'll see that in the next month and a half, and that we'll then have the government funded through the end of September. Now, after that, one of the things that came out of this, we initially had a two-year deal, and in this new revised deal, they did not, they chose to They chose to not make a deal for 2025, so I think we're going to be in the same, you know, to your point about the general dysfunction, I think we're going to be in the exact same mess again um, uh, starting in October, right? Like, I I don't, like, I don't, the underlying dynamic of complete and major dysfunction has not changed, but I believe that this, I, I could be wrong, but I believe this one's for real for the end of this, through the end of this fiscal year.
1: Well, I know that uh, initially when this deal with Chuck Schumer was announced, Mike Johnson said, you know, he thought it was a good deal. He was sticking to it. And I know Mitch McConnell almost uh, uh, tried to give him some cover, you know, because Mitch McConnell was like, well, you know, I don't think Mike understands how long it takes things to get through the Senate. So maybe another stopgap bill is what we need. Um, and even after that, Mike Johnson was, I think we can get it done. And then it was apparent they couldn't get it done. And they did vote to extend. Um, and I know Marjorie Taylor Greene has made noises about um, getting a no confidence vote for Mike Johnson. But as far as you've been able to observe so far, she's not selling that idea too well to her colleagues.
7: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> his his speaker. His majority is very slim, Um but, uh, yeah, I think there are two, two things. Remember, Democrats didn't help bail McCarthy out. Um, and there has been talk of Democrats being willing to bail Johnson out right here basically to say, hey, we have to be able to govern at, at some point. So, I yeah, as you say, there was a little bit of kind of talk about that. But for, at least from what I can see, that's that's fizzled out. These bills, they take, you know, t- to the point that you made about, you know, <laughs> Senator McConnell saying, no, it takes a little bit longer from start to finish. These bills take about if you're going at breakneck speed and everyone is working together and everything's going right, it takes four to six weeks. And so. That's why they needed to extend funding, and they went they went through March first. They kind of broke it into two parts, but March first for one part, and, and March eighth for a second part. Um, I think we will uh, we'll either see one kind of big bill where they do it all together, called non the bus, or they'll split it into two parts called a mini bus. If they're doing the uh, two mini buses, if they do that, we could we might see the first one sooner rather than later, but. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. It's possible we'll see another one. As I say, I assume that they'll work towards this, but it's always possible, as you said, that everything falls apart again. The, yes. the, the everything, I mean, everything could fall apart. There are easily enough votes for a deal in keeping with what they made to pass. There are easily enough votes for these bills to pass. Um, they're tough, they're tight spending limits, right? Democrats made major concessions. This all started because um, House those Republicans were threatening to force the government into default, defaulting on our on our not only our commitments to our bondholders, but also our legal obligations um to people, right? Our our legal obligations to social security recipients, to Medicare recipients, to veterans, right? Like they were threatening to force us to default. And their big ask was spending cuts. And so Democrats You know, they gave them some spending cuts. And then, as they say, a week later, House Republicans backed away and said, no, we want even more spending cuts. And so that's kind of how this all happened. Democrats have already made concessions. These budget caps that Democrats agreed to were were not as big as the Republicans were asking for, but they're meaningful, right? They're basically... Uh, they're basically a freeze um, before you account for inflation, population growth, and other kind of growing needs. And so once you account for that, um, they end up being around a five percent cut, kind of in real services for a lot of these programs that people re- rely on. Right. So these are it's the part. It's not all the government. It's about a third of the government. This is like where we do a lot of our housing benefits. It's where we do our education benefits. It's where we do our um, some of our nutrition, not all of our nutrition. But uh, it's where we do like our nutrition for um, pregnant moms and, and newborns and infants. It's it's where we do our it's where we do our R&D and kind of investments in the future. Right. So it's, it's an important part of the government uh, that Republicans kind of already secured these um, meaningful cuts into now uh there is bipartisan ability right there there are enough votes easily the house, the white house is ready to do it the house democrats are ready to do it the senate democrats are ready to do it the senate republicans are ready to do it in fact the senate dems and republicans came up with a deal to go six billion dollars above the deal um the issue all along has been house republicans i um, completely you know completely living in a different reality here and um the big the big fight is going to be can you know will will the majority be able to do stuff or will one part of one part of the government kind of burn everything down um and that's the conflict you know speaker mccarthy didn't want to lose his job and he did lose his job speaker johnson doesn't want to lose his job and the tension is do we do something that easily has enough votes to pass or do we shut down and that's it those are the only options
1: wow I'm talking to Bobby Kogan, who's the senior director of federal, federal budget policy at the Center for American Progress. We're going to take a real quick break and be back with more after this.
0: Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820.
1: I'm talking budget and what we can expect and whether or not the federal government is going to actually pass a budget or just decide to shut down with Bobby Kogan, senior director of federal budget policy at the Center for American Progress. And, you know, Bobby... Uh, you were talking before the break about some of the cuts that, uh, Republicans want and apparently Democrats have agreed to. And it's always interesting to me. The Republicans are always like, oh, the budget's too big. We gotta cut. We've gotta cut. But Bobby, they never suggest, uh, cutting anything out of that trillion dollar tax break that the ultra wealthy got. They are, uh, they would rather cut services to pregnant women and they'd rather cut services, uh, to preschool kids, then they would um, cut taxes to the zero zero point one zero zero percent. I don't know. I know there's nothing you can do about that, Bobby, but it never fails to impress me when I when I read about what the specifics of the tax cuts are. It's like um, there should be no social programs for anybody at any time, even though. You know, the joke is, if you want to be in the C-suite, you have to be pale, male and Yale. I mean, they don't even appreciate the fact that um, it is not that they got where they are because of their brilliance. It's because they had a leg up. They were white. They were wealthy. They, you know, they got into a, a good school. They knew their families knew the right people. And it's somehow this idea that if you're poor, that it's you're poor because it's your fault. And I know, Bobby, this is not what we signed on to talk about today, but it just drives me nuts.
7: I mean, that's it's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the point of... The point of the federal government is to make sure that we're safe and to make sure that people are able to thrive the budget is a statement of priorities and the purpose of this is to help um, lessen some of the unfairness in society to make sure that people are able to have good meaningful and fulfilling lives um, the government lifts tens of millions of people out of poverty every year but it still leaves tens of millions of poverty, uh, people in poverty every year and that's a, you know it's a it's a major it's a disgrace to the country as rich um, as we are, I can still leave so many people suffering. Now, to your point that you made about um, about somehow there are always being – people always focusing on cutting services, but there's never any focus on uh, what about undoing some of the tax breaks. I'd say it's even worse. So the, ma- the first and biggest priority all year long for Republicans has been going after um, – <laughs> uh, so in, in the Inflation Reduction Act, um, we gave $80 billion to the IRS, which – Oh, primarily was about going after wealthy tax cheats, right? So it was only focusing on people who make above 400K in profitable corporations. And it's about making sure they pay the taxes that they currently legally already owe, right? So when you go and you pay your taxes, right, we're in tax season right now, you want to try to make sure that you're doing it right. There are a whole a host of people who either, who basically are deliberately cheating on their taxes. And we gave $80 billion to make, Basically, go after rich people who are cheating on their taxes and getting rid of that money um, has been the biggest priority of Republicans Mm -hmm. all year long. The first bill that they introduced this Congress when they retook the House, the first bill they introduced we would pull that all back, right? And in, I told you that they 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 came up with this this you know they came to this agreement back in June, and then they kind of reiterated the agreement. The biggest thing, the most important thing that Republicans fought for and got in this new deal was extra cuts to this IRS to to that kind of IRS funding that's just making sure that people pay the taxes they already owe, mm-hmm. um, just rich people, right? So they're going to cut of that eighty billion dollars, twenty billion of it just to help rich people cheat on the taxes that they already legally owe, right? So this, and this, of course, loses money, right? If you don't go after rich tax cheats and you don't take in – um, you, you don't actually yeah. take in the revenue that they're supposed to pay. So by cutting this, it actually is increasing the deficit. It's, it's not about deficits, right? Like this this action is a deficit increaser. It's not about small government or deficits. It's just about letting rich people cheat on the taxes they already owe, even before you get to giving them more tax, uh, more tax breaks.
1: And I want to talk about um, one of the other um, funding areas. There was – I know Mitch McConnell is a big supporter of funding for Ukraine. At first, there was going to be a bundle, Israel, Taiwan, Ukraine, and then Mike Johnson said, no, we're going to split them all apart. Then all of a sudden it was like, no, we're not going to vote for any of that unless there is, um, a border reform money in that same package. Now they've heard from, um, the, presumptive nominee donald trump that he doesn't want anything passed on the border because he doesn't want joe biden to look like he's doing anything so take the border stuff back out again so where does that leave us do you think there will be a one funding bill for ukraine and the indo-pacific region and israel are we going to do these things piecemeal is it going to not happen at all do you have any feel for that
7: yeah i would say that one's a big unknown So there are three kind of big things moving right now in Congress. There's, you know, funding this 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 part of the budget that's called the discretionary part of the budget, which is about a third of the budget, right? So that's what we've been talking about all day. There's also this uh, border slash international supplemental. And then there's a third thing. There's a kind of a tax deal where it would, um, uh, in in, in the spirit of bipartisan compromise, it would give tax cuts to corporations but also to – poor families with kids. Right. So the Democrats wanted um, tax cuts for uh, it, giving if you if you're poor and you have a kid, it would help you out. Um, and the Republicans said, well, if you want to do that, then we want to give tax cuts to corporations. And so that those three things are, are sort of all in motion. And they, um, those latter two kind of are in the who knows what's going to happen category. Are they going to happen? If they are happened, do they Put do they go separately? Do parts of it get broken off? Do they get put as all you know all together? Who knows? Um, the Senate there were conflicting rumors out of the Senate Caucus um, meeting yesterday. Some people you know said that. Um, that McConnell was backing away from everything. Other people said that he wasn't. Now apparently they, you know, there was uh, something that came out an hour ago that said they were going to work all weekend on on the border international deal. I would say it's real TBD. Um, I think that they probably won't get split off, but it, it won't get split apart. But that means. They'll either happen together or they, I think that probably means that they just won't happen at all or they'll happen together. The House has made clear, right? There's, the Senate has its own problem, but the House has made clear this whole time. They keep moving the goalposts. First they said, we, you know, we want lots of immigration uh, changes. And then they said they wanted it to be bigger and more like what they had initially asked for, which is a really nasty anti-immigration bill. And they said they wanted all of that. And then the Senate kind of was giving them more and more. And then the the House backed away and said, nope, that's not good enough. Nothing's going to be good enough. We don't want that at all. And so even if the Senate can get it over the, you know, even if the Senate can pass it, then there's the question of whether the House would take it at all. And as I said, I I think the more kind of extreme people in the House Uh, the more extreme House Republicans, as I say, I think they're gonna basically give Johnson, you know, they'll, they'll mumble, they'll grumble, but I don't think they're gonna make Johnson lose his job over just funding the government. But if Johnson then says, "Okay," and I'm attaching the international stuff, then maybe they kick him out. And that's another reason why that might not happen is maybe the internal politics allow funding of the government, but maybe they don't allow any international support or anything like that. So I, as I say, I said in the beginning, I'm bad about I'm bad at predicting political outcomes. I'm good at policy. I'm bad at uh, predicting political outcomes. Um, My my feeling for a long time has been that. Uh, that the international border thing probably won't happen. But, you know, that remains to be seen.
1: Wow. Bobby Cogan is the only person I know who has the gift of making budget talk fascinating and riveting. And, (laughs) Bobby, I love talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today.
7: Joan, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: You are very welcome. Bobby Cogan is the Senior Director of Federal Budget Policy at the Center for American Progress. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820.
1: There has been not only a lot of talk, but there's been a lot of things going on about immigration, particularly when it comes to Texas. You can remember when the Texas Attorney General refused to allow border agents to access some of the areas where they had traditionally stored overflow migrants. There was a Supreme Court ruling supporting the Department of Justice in their moves to, say, bring the razor wire down that the state of Texas had put up. The state of Texas responded to that Supreme Court ruling by adding more razor wire to the the to the border, uh, was trying to prevent uh, migrants from crossing in certain places. Now we're looking at what's going on on Capitol Hill as um, there was a deal that appeared to be on its way to agreement in a bipartisan fashion for um, reform of what is going on with the handling of migrants. Now it appears, Um, Because President Biden, Biden, because President Trump, former President Trump, doesn't want any resolution on this issue. uh, Senate Republicans are now saying "Eh, that's probably off the table. It is it is a picture that is changing on a daily basis to help us make some kind of sense of it. We asked Kate Lincoln Goldfitch goldfinch if she would come back and join us again she is of course a texas immigration attorney she has her own firm lincoln goldfinch and uh, she is a clear and understandable voice on all of this confusion kate thank you for joining us again hi john how you doing it's good to be back i'm doing pretty well so um where do things let's let's just talk about some of the practicalities Um, The area that um, Ken Paxton refused to let uh, border control agents into, where does that stand right now?
8: So that area is Shelby Park, which is a park in Eagle Pass, and the latest on that, there haven't been any court orders because that was, you know, recent enough that there's no, you know, lawsuits or or orders on that, but the, the... Issue is there's it's a park I'm I'm forgetting about how many miles it it covers in Eagle Pass, but that one you know one of the things that made headlines was that there was a a woman a mother and her two children who drowned in that section of the park, and Border Patrol agents were prohibited from accessing the area um, by state law enforcement agents and the Biden administration, you know, did his public statement about it. And Ken Paxson responded and the two sides are saying different things. The state of Texas is saying, well, the migrants were already dead by the time you were trying to get gain access. But in any event, this is just, you know, Uh, just an example of the way that the state is coming in and not collaborating, not cooperating with the federal authorities along the border. And it's just creating these humanitarian issues and problems. And frankly, it's making the whole border less stable.
1: Let's talk about the issue with the razor wire. The Supreme Court gave the Department of Justice The controlling hand here, and then on CNN the very next day, I see, I don't know whether it was National Guard, I don't know who it was, but I see people from the state of Texas putting
8: up more razor wire. Where does that stand? Yeah, I mean, it's just more of the same. So there's this, you know, another section of 30 miles of razor wire. I've been on the Eagle Pass. I've seen it. And so it's, a, you know, along the the banks of the river, there's these shipping containers with just razor wire placed along the top of them. And uh, the lawsuit, I'm trying to remember who initiated the lawsuit, Um, I think it was the state of Texas, because Border Patrol was taking down the wire. And so it was initiated by the state of Texas, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, sided with the state saying that, you know, Border Patrol cannot remove the razor wire. And that injunction went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, just a one-page decision without a lot of words because it's just an emergency injunction, um, they sided with the Biden administration, which is good. And they said, you know, this—well— I won't say what they said because we don't really know the thinking behind it, but but essentially it's the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which says that you know border enforcement is a federal jurisdictional issue, and that's what the Supreme Court held, even this conservative Supreme Court. Now, it was only a 5-4 decision on something that should have been crystal clear, slam dunk, um, so it's a little concerning that it wasn't. You know, um, I don't know <laughs> mm-hmm. a different a different split, let's say, but uh, it is an indication, somewhat, of the way that the court would hold. You know, in the bigger question, as these cases make their way up, over whether Texas can, you know, get in the way, keep out um, federal authorities along along the border.
1: I've talked to some people who are following this story who say that it appears to them. That what Greg Abbott is trying to bring about is some kind of a confrontation. And I'm not talking about a confrontation in court. I'm talking about an actual confrontation where uh, there are guns brought to bear, an armed confrontation. And the person I talked to said that they thought the Biden administration was smart enough to see that and would avoid it and could avoid it by continuing to go to court. And in a worst case scenario, uh, could federalize the Texas National Guard and put them under federal control. What do you think about all that? Where, Where do you land opinion wise on all that?
8: I mean, wouldn't that just be the most tragic? I mean, it's just it's so frustrating to think about uh, what the state of Texas is doing and what Greg Abbott is doing for really, frankly, at the end of the day, attention for political attention. There's one person really who gains from all of this All of these stunts along the border. Um, The reality is that the border is not porous. Biden does not have open borders. In fact, Biden has deported way more immigrants than any other president in history and on a monthly basis deports three and a half times the amount of immigrants that Trump did. Um, But there's this narrative out there that that the borders are open. Um, But, you know, and that narrative is encouraged by people like Greg Abbott. And so he does these, takes these actions that get in the way they, they, you know, hurt people and people are dying. And that, that is a humanitarian angle that many of us care about. Um, But the people who don't care about the humanitarian angle and who are more concerned with border safety, I hope should also recognize that when we have two jurisdictions battling at the border for control, that makes the border less safe, less stable, less secure. And so Greg Abbott is spending, you know, billions of dollars of Texas taxpayer money for nothing, um, for harming all of us, uh, because he's he's gaining politically from this. And that, I think, is what we all need to realize. You know, even... Oh, 24
1: hours ago, I was reading about, you know, um, border reform and how, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans appeared to be on track to a bipartisan bill to, um, in some ways, reform the situation. And then, you know, this is coming from many different sources, so I tend to believe it. Donald Trump got on the horn. With some Republican senators and let them know that he did not want any kind of bill passed that would uh, that it would all that would alter the situation because he thinks it is a good issue with which to attack Joe Biden. And if something is voted on, it might look like Joe Biden, you know, is doing something that he'd had a victory. So. If indeed all that is true, it would appear that there would be no kind of reform uh, until after the 2024 election. Do you think that's do you think that reporting is accurate? And what do you think about
8: it? Sure. And I think it's the same. It's the same behavior that we see from Abbott. They don't they don't really want things to calm down and get better at the border. I was down there. A few weeks ago, it was when, you know, there was a lot of reports coming about the migrant surge, you know, and, and I am four hours away. So I decided to just drive down and see what what are they talking about? What, how did all of a sudden, you know, 10,000 migrants just collectively decide to cross the border all at once? They're not that organized. These people are desperate and they're homeless. And so what is going on down there? So I drove down there and there was sure enough, there were hundreds of migrants being kept in this field. But the field was... Right There was a parking lot, you know, and they were guiding us. Out, oh, are you media? Are you press? Come over here and park over here. And here's a place where you can set up all your cameras that happen to be, you know, on the top of the hill overlooking this group of migrants. Meanwhile, Border Patrol is carrying a podium out for a congressman to come and make a press conference. And while he's speaking, he's talking about, you know, drug trafficking and all the stuff that they spew as if these, you know, asylum seekers are drug traffickers. Meanwhile, these people, I mean, I counted four people during the press conference being carried out, having fainted, being carried out by Border Patrol officers, like four people carrying their hands and feet because they've lost consciousness because they don't have the basic necessities of life. And yet we're accusing them of of trafficking drugs. They don't even have water. Um, I mean, the whole thing is just such a political stage and I will just say it over and over again. There are people who are benefiting from this political theater and those people are campaigning right now. And what, if what we really want is stability and security along the southern border, then we need policies that are pro-immigration, that create systematic, orderly ways for people to immigrate to the United States. That is the truth. That is the bottom line. And until Congress and our leaders can get together and be honest with us... About the need for immigration, the benefit of immigration, and past reforms that reflect the needs of our economy, we're going to continue to see nonsense like this at the border, and it's maddening because they're 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 out there claiming that we're all in danger because of what's happening, but they're the ones who are putting us in danger. Um, and and it's so easy, I think, for people to to listen to what they say and to be afraid. It's such a such a hot, you know, trigger like button that they can push so easily to make people feel afraid. And it's not based in reality.
1: Well, that's what we're seeing um, on a lot of issues that Republicans um, want issues where they can make people either angry or afraid because they think that that's what really inspires their voters to get out and support them. And um, I want to talk to you more about this, Kate. We need to take a break right now. I'm talking to Kate Lincoln-Goldfish, Finch, sorry, immigration attorney and owner and CEO of Lincoln Goldfinch Law. We'll be right back after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that
5: I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that.
0: I'm WCPT 820.
1: I am joined by Kate Lincoln Goldfinch, who's an immigration attorney based in Texas. She's the owner and CEO of Lincoln Goldfinch Law. She is uh, somebody who is living through this situation in, in Texas. Kate, what is, what is it like for you to be in Texas and work in this area that is just so political and so controversial?
8: Does it take a toll on you? No, I was, I'm laughing because my my dad he lives in Massachusetts and he he was he gets all riled when he sees my videos and the comments on them because I do a lot of videos about this stuff and the comments can ju- will just sort of blow your mind. I mean, for example, uh, recently uh, Greg Abbott said in a recorded interview that the only reason the state isn't just shooting migrants is because they would be charged with murder by the Biden administration. I mean, he just, you know, said those words out loud in the recording and I did a video about this and the comments from people. I mean, I think they're all over, but mostly in Texas. I mean, people were saying things like, well, you should just, you know, put landmines, we should just put landmines. I mean, just like hundreds of people fully in support of the murder of these People. These people who, you know, who it's they're they're so amazing. If you get a chance to talk to migrants who, you know, have had something happen in their home country in Venezuela and they've lost everything and they've figured out a way to make it all the way to our border just so that they can protect themselves or give their kids a better future. These people are so amazing and brave and resourceful, and they're exactly the kinds of people, first of all, who have populated our nation over the centuries um, and also the kind of people that we want here. And so it's heartbreaking really that people um, dehumanize migrants in the way that they do. And yeah, it is, it is tough being in Texas um, and, and having this political issue. I mean, I don't care what people say to me, but I get very upset on behalf of my clients about the things that people say. And, you know, as we go into another Election year, here we go again. You know, we we worked through the Trump administration and I was front and center, you know, for the family separations. I represented Mm. moms that entire summer who had had their children ripped out of their arms, you know, and I've worked with kids who have come across the border alone and people who have been detained and facing the possibility of another Four years of that um, is really, really gut wrenching, and I can tell you, my clients are terrified. Um, The the immigrant population in the state of Texas is absolutely terrified right now because of the election, but also we have a new law here, Senate Bill Four, that authorizes law enforcement agents to arrest people for entering the country illegally, and that goes into effect on March sixth. So it's um, that's the new state law that
1: that Abbott had them pass to try to wrest control from the federal government.
8: Correct. It is, and he definitely had them, you know, the legislature finally got it through in the fourth special session, and I was there at the Capitol for the committee hearings. I testified a couple of times, and we were, you know, our community was bringing up really valid constitutional errors within this law, you know, but this this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem, and they just didn't care. They just passed the whole thing right through, um, and there's provisions in this law that say, for example... If someone's being charged with illegal entry and they're facing, you know, a year in prison, instead of a charge, they can accept a departure, right? And so, but if they don't leave, if they accept the departure and they don't leave, there's a crime that is created in this law that carries a 20-year jail sentence for not leaving the country. Um, Just incredibly, like, draconian stuff within this law. And it's, you know, it's being litigated. I'm sure there are portions of it that will be enjoined, but probably some of it will go forward. And meanwhile, it's not just the immigrants in Texas who get impacted. It's all of us. It's our economy. You know, construction slows. Conferences get canceled. It's just all of this stuff. The Operation Lone Star stuff, Senate Bill 4, all of these actions, that's why I keep saying this, these actions that Abbott is taking do not help Texans. They hurt us. Um, But he benefits from all of this.
1: Is the situation in Texas, I mean, we know that we've got this um, this uh, migration of people from Venezuela is the situation. I mean, is Texas overwhelmed? How much of this is political theater, and how much is it that there are just so many people uh, trying to get into this country and using Texas as their doorway that there really is concern that that there needs to be something done?
8: Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, it's mostly political theater and the numbers are are elevated right now but the numbers ebb and flow and that these things occur due to seasonality due to political unrest in particular countries due to global warming but primarily the problem For us, is that we have had unclear policies at the border now for going on four years. So up until March of 2020, for 20 years we had a system in place for asylum seekers to present themselves at the border, and they they got detained temporarily, and they'd be screened for asylum. And if they didn't qualify, they would be deported. And it wasn't a perfect system, but it functioned, and we'd have normal ebbs and flows. But then we shut the border down completely for three years. So for well now almost four years. Asylum seekers just can't come and apply for asylum the way that they had for, you know, we've had this law in place for 70 years. So we're having a reckoning with the asylum seekers because it was just in May of last year that COVID, the COVID public health emergency ended. And so that reason for shutting the border went away. So Biden's been doing things like the parole program for certain people from certain countries and unaccompanied kids get in. And, you know, it's just it's a you got to use CBP one app to be able to be processed. in. it's something different every day. And so meanwhile, it creates so much confusion fusion, it ratchets up the chaos and people don't know what to expect. They don't know the system and if someone just gets rejected let's say someone's outside of the border and they come, they try attempt to cross, they get apprehended and taken right back across. Well, they're going to try the same thing tomorrow mm-hmm. because, you know, they haven't been given a, a chance to prod, be processed by our system. So it's our failure to create an orderly and dignified process that has created the most confusion in my opinion
1: Kate thank you for joining us it is always educational when you come on um, and you're living this stuff I mean I read about it and it affects me but you're living it every day and I'm I'm so glad you're there fighting the good fight thank you for being here and bringing us up to speed thank you Uh, Kate Lincoln-Goldfinch is the owner and CEO of Lincoln-Goldfinch Law. She's based in Austin, Texas, and uh, that is going to do it for us today. I want to remind you that I'm going to be off tomorrow. Jennifer Weigel is going to be sitting in. I also want to thank those of you who took time to text me birthday wishes I'm sharing my birthday with you today, and uh, I have enjoyed it as I enjoy every day sitting here and uh, talking to this audience. So uh, thank you for that. Um, I will be back in this seat Monday at uh, 2.30. So uh, please be as good to Jennifer Weigel as you always are to me. I know it'll be an interesting day for you. Driving at home with Patty Vasquez. Speaking of somebody who also said some nice things about me, Patty, I don't know if you're listening, but thank you very much. You are very kind and very sweet. And now I am going to go off and have a lovely, lovely birthday dinner with Ray. He won't tell me where we're going. Um, So hopefully it's someplace good. Uh, That's going to do it for me. Uh, Have fun tonight. Stay safe, my friends. I will see you Monday, Monday the 29th. Be here at 2 p.m. and I will join you. Until then, have a great evening and good night.